London, small city, dark, dark in the daytime. People sleep, sleep in the daytime if they want to, if they want to. Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Sock and Source LLC. For more local news, please visit sockandsource.com. Hello, and welcome to another exciting local news roundup here on your local news and information podcast, No Rain Date. I'm Josh Popachak, the host of No Rain Date and the publisher of Sock and Source, here with the headlines for the week ending July 3rd, 2021. The big story this week, and the story I'm going to be focusing on, is about the Hellertown pool and problems that have occurred there since the pool opened on June 23rd. That was just a little over a week ago, but it seems like longer than that because so many issues have arisen since opening day. I am not personally a Hellertown pool goer or any local pool goer. I do enjoy swimming, but I just never have gotten into that habit, and I'm also a little busy reporting on on local news. So I personally have not witnessed any of the things that I have been told have occurred since opening day. However, I have gotten an earful from various members of the community who've been upset by behavior they have seen, fighting, which apparently occurred on at least two different occasions inside and outside the pool grounds and just a general lack of respect for authority at the pool and that's something that the borough of Hellertown confirmed in an announcement they made on Tuesday which was effective immediately June 30th no more daily admissions would be sold this season So that was a big change. I don't recall that ever happening before. Without daily admissions, the only people eligible to visit the pool were season pass holders. And so there was immediately an outcry from local residents, Hellertown and Lower Saucon residents, who support the operation of the pool with their taxes. Some of them said, you know, we only swim a couple times a year there, and it doesn't pay for us to buy season passes. This doesn't seem fair. And I think that was a legitimate critique of the first decision, which was apparently made at an emergency Hellertown Borough Council meeting that was held Tuesday night. Backing up a little bit, there was apparently an incident to which the police responded on Tuesday afternoon at the pool. And that followed on the heels of the theft of a beloved piece of pool history. You could call it Hellertown Pooliana. <laughs> it's not quite an antique, but it's certainly a vintage piece of mid-century Americana, a clown-shaped garbage pail topper. So if you can picture a clown's head made out of metal, it fits on top of a cylindrical standard size municipal garbage can. And when you have garbage, you stick it in the clown's mouth. 
there are several of these at the pool and they've been there for pretty much as long as everyone can remember. They've probably been there, I would say, since at least the 60s. And so they're part of the pool. And there was outrage when one of them was stolen right out from the pool on Saturday night. It was eventually recovered. It was found discarded along Depot Street, which is adjacent to the pool. That was on Wednesday, I believe. The borough had publicized the theft on Tuesday, and that ignited a huge outpouring of anger and other emotions on Facebook. We shared that story. It was in the morning call. It was on Lehigh Valley Live. I think it was on Channel 69 News. It was a big story. And that may have influenced the person who took it in their decision to return it. Now, my understanding is that police have reviewed video surveillance of a suspect or suspects at the pool on Saturday, whether that will be enough to charge anybody or whether the borough even wants to charge anybody is not known to myself at this time. But the fact is that the clown garbage topper is worth quite a bit of money. One of them that we linked to in an article about this was selling on eBay for $1,250. Now that was not the exact same type, but it was very similar. So you're looking at, you know, grand theft, grand larceny when something is that valuable. Getting back to the response on Tuesday, it was clearly in response to a number of issues that had occurred. And we don't know the details. Hellertown Borough Council President Tom Rieger confirmed for us that there were several active investigations by Hellertown police into incidents that occurred at the Hellertown pool. And whether charges will be forthcoming is unknown. We will certainly report on them if we become aware of them. Back to the decision to eliminate daily admissions to the pool. The following day, in response to some of the criticism, the borough sort of modified its new requirements for admission. The change in policy allows season pass holders to purchase a guest ticket for someone at the pool. They must pay the standard amount for the individual, whether they are an adult, a child, a senior, and they can only purchase one guest ticket per season pass holder. So say you are going there as a family of four and you have your season pass and you want grandma and grandpa to come in with you. Well, that's two guest tickets and you only get one per season pass. The way around this is to go to Borough Hall. You have to go Monday through Friday between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. and purchase a block of 10 daily tickets for $80. And then you can use those daily tickets when you need to do that. Proof of residency is required when you are purchasing them. You must be a resident of Hellertown or Lower Saucon 
in order to do that and you obviously must be a season pass holder if you're not yet a season pass holder and you live in hellertown or lower Saucon, you can still purchase a season pass and those rates are listed on the hellertown borough website we've listed them in our stories i'm not going to rattle them all off right now but adult season pass rate is 85 dollars the season pass for a family of five i believe is 165 somewhere in that range so it's still you know a good deal if you're going to be going to the pool frequently we have a couple more months of pool days the last day the pool will be open is august 22nd so you can do the math but you do need to go at least probably 10 times as an individual to get your money's worth So again, there is this question of whether this is fair to the residents who, for whatever reason, don't have time to go that often, don't have any desire to, only want to go swimming a few times. They can still purchase a block of 10 daily tickets for $80 with proof of residency. But then it's like, I guess you might as well buy a season pass for $5 more. Because what if you, you know, buy the 10 tickets and then you want to keep swimming? Then you can't go anymore because you don't have a season pass. That's my analysis of this. You know, you're trading $5 in savings for, you know, possibly missing out on additional swimming. So everybody, you know, is sort of adjusting to this new normal as far as the admission requirements. But apparently things have gone more smoothly at the pool since Tuesday. Those are the reports that I have heard from local people. Certainly, if things were still out of control, I would be hearing that, and and that's not been the case. I thought it was interesting, too. Somebody shared a screenshot with me from a Facebook group. This is actually the Beltsville State Park Concerned Citizens group, where members of that group read the news stories about the Hellertown Pool's changes in admission, and we're talking about how they would like to see Beltsville State Park do the same thing. In other words, restrict outsiders. Now, that's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges to compare a municipal pool and a state park. Municipalities have a greater ability to set their own rules for uh, recreational facilities that they manage. State parks are traditionally, at least in Pennsylvania, open to the public and the public means the public it doesn't mean just the public from pennsylvania it means the public in general so that's the core issue in that case and and it's not a new issue there's been overcrowding at beltsville for years now and certainly other problems that come with it you can find copious news stories about that online back to the hellertown pool The other question is, you know, how does this make the community appear to outsiders? Is it, you know, a good thing, a bad thing? Neither. It doesn't matter. These are all subjects that are up for discussion. I certainly think that it does not exactly project a welcoming image, you know, when you have to crack down in this manner and restrict the outsiders, for lack of a better word, from visiting the pool. But I don't have all the information about what happened. I don't know who allegedly 
did what and where they're from. So it's difficult to make any kind of judgment in this case about whether the actions of the borough were justified. And I do wish that the borough had been a little more transparent about the specific incidents. They don't have to name names. They don't have to, you know, name hometowns or anything like that, ages, genders, but just give us an idea of what exactly transpired, you know, so that the community, I think, you know, is a little more aware of, of what's going on. The community at large, a lot of people go to the Hellertown pool, but it's still a small minority of people who live here overall. Most people are working all week. And on the weekends, they might be doing things around the house or traveling or who knows what. But, you know, the pool has sort of its own, it's sort of like its own community within the community. And the people who are part of the pool community are very loyal to it and very vigilant of, you know, protecting the pool's image. Uh, It's a historic pool. It was built in 1939 at the end of the Depression using funding that... Hellertown Chief Burgess Morris Dimmick secured from the federal government. It's a beautiful facility. It's been well-maintained. It doesn't look a day over 79. No, just kidding. But it's a huge pool for this area, and especially for the size of Hellertown. It's ginormous, even today. And 80 years ago, the population of Hellertown was about 3,000, or about half of what it is today. So you got to figure that they were clearly envisioning big things for the future of Hellertown when they planned the size of this pool. There's a historic bathhouse in front of it, and it's ideally situated right across from Dimmick Park, where you have a beautiful pavilion, a band shell, a playground, playing fields. So it's sort of the heart of the recreational complex in Hellertown, and it's very visible. It's sort of symbolic, I think, of the community in a lot of ways. And so when things go wrong there, there's a sense that things are going wrong in Hellertown more generally. And that, I think, also factored into the reaction of the borough officials, the reaction of patrons, and why there was this sense of urgency to address these issues. I should also point out that there were a number of factors that led to the crowds at the pool, which contributed to these problems. A, we had pent-up demand. Almost all pools were closed in 2020 due to the coronavirus pandemic. And most pools have opened late this year because of lifeguard shortages. Some pools still haven't opened at all. Bethlehem kept a couple of its pools closed, and it's keeping them closed all summer. Other pools have restrictions for admissions. So you have fewer pools overall. That's funneling more people into Hellertown. I don't think the borough really foresaw that happening, so that is another reason why there was a rapid reaction. Not only is there a staffing shortage, there is a shortage of experienced staff. I've heard various reasons for this, but certainly it is a fact that the former pool manager, Ed Koloski, did not return this year to manage the pool. 
he managed the Hellertown pool previously for approximately 30 years, I believe. And he typically brought a number of experienced lifeguards back year after year, and many of them were students that he coached at Saucon Valley High School. So without Mr. Koloski there, I have been told by numerous sources that many of those students did not want to return. Hence, we have more inexperienced staff. What is the daily management of the pool like? I cannot speak to that. I don't have information, but the Greater Valley YMCA has taken over management of the pool. And I think it's probably safe to say that it's not the same level of daily oversight that there was when Ed Koloski was managing the pool. That's the impression that I have. Finally, we had a heat wave that began on Sunday, and that rapidly drew in more people. So there really was a perfect storm this past week for problems to develop at the pool. And they certainly did. As I said, hindsight is obviously 2020, but I do not see how the borough was prepared exactly for what happened. Not that they could have been totally, but perhaps a little more planning or analysis of what was happening in surrounding communities could have been made. Perhaps police could have been more proactive in checking the pool on a rotational schedule. I know they are doing that now, but it does not sound like that was happening before it became a crisis. So government, good government, is ideally looking ahead and planning so that, you know, there doesn't have to be a quick decision made, which is never ideal. Those decisions, you know, then have to be rethought. And as I said, they modified the admittance rules and requirements somewhat. But there are still, you know, gaps in them as far as like local residents are concerned and they pay a lot in taxes to live here especially in hellertown borough so to expect to be able to go to the pool a few times in the summer i don't think is particularly unreasonable hopefully you know this will be a learning experience for everyone i'm certainly learning a lot about the pool and i've never written about the pool as much as i have in the past week so hopefully it will be a quiet Fourth of July weekend there. It's typically very busy with Fourth of July falling on a Sunday. I'll be curious to see what the attendance is like there. On a busy day at the Hellertown Pool, there can be over a thousand patrons there. That's how big it is. So we'll be keeping an eye on it and continuing to cover it, good and or bad. We want to highlight the good, of course. We were there on opening day and Chris Christian took some amazing photos of kids having fun jumping into the pool, going off the diving board, and so forth. Lifeguards, they are doing a great job. It's not an easy job. And I also want to mention the fact that, you know, the lifeguard's job is solely to watch the swimmers in the pool. They don't, you know, handle security. (laughs) They shouldn't be expected to. They are not babysitters. Unfortunately, there are always going to be a few people who sort of want to take advantage of the pool as a place to take the kids and then, you know, we don't have to worry about them for a few hours. It's never a good way to think about visiting the pool. 
And so hopefully everybody will exercise personal responsibility in visiting the Hellertown pool. Think of others, be respectful. We shared the pool rules in our latest story. Please review them if you're planning to visit. They are specific about things like coolers and what you can take into the pool and so forth. Always a good idea to review them and then have a great time. As I said, this has been an unusual week, so instead of our usual roundup, I have focused on the pool. I just want to mention a couple of upcoming events that are going to be happening. Of course, we have the Sauk Valley Farmer's Market going on. That's open every Sunday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Hellertown Area Library, 409 Constitution Avenue, across from Dimmick Park. And very close to the Hellertown pool, you can hear the kids laughing and yelling from the farmer's market. It's that close. Johnny Hart profiled a new vendor this week called Blackbird Farms. They are based in the Emmaus area, and the farmer, Keegan Hilaire, is a young and energetic organic farmer. He's growing over a hundred different types of produce. Much of it is heirloom and organic. And Johnny has a great story about him and his enthusiasm for introducing organic produce to more people. He also has farm shares available. So I think you'll want to check that out. Fourth of July is obviously Sunday. There are no fireworks in the Saucon Valley. If you want to see fireworks on the 4th of July, the closest places where people go are typically Bethlehem and Quakertown. Hellertown's fireworks are held on the Friday night of Carnival Week. Carnival is coming up in a couple of weeks at the Dewey Fire Company. We will, of course, be covering that and giving you a heads up about what to expect when you visit. I know a lot of people are looking forward to that because we did not have that in 2020. So those are the upcoming events and also concerts in the park. We will be at the next one, which is July 11th. That's a Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. in Dimmick Park. The local food trucks, Lost Tavern Brewing, Sleepy Cat Urban Winery will be there. We'll have an ad for the concert, which is presented by the Hellertown Lower Saucon Chamber and supporting sponsors, including Saucon Source. We'll have that on the website, so look for that. And I hope everybody has a great week. Here at Saucon Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service. And we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money. And that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Saucon Source. And we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the 
website, sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source, which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options, including a monthly membership for $7, a four month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. This week on No Rain Day, we have a very special guest and extra special because our guest was originally supposed to be our guest back in March of 2020, believe it or not, right around the time that the COVID-19 pandemic began. And so we never forgot that we had that booking that was postponed and reached out to him and he graciously agreed to pick up where we left off. John Braun from Start Making Sense, which is a Talking Heads cover band, but so much more than that. They are based in Bethlehem. Welcome to No Rain Date. Hey, Josh. It's good to be here. Absolutely. I, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes, finally. I have a personal connection to Start Making Sense because my sister, Sylvia, is sometimes a performer with you guys on vocals and you have a large sort of unique structure for the band where you have sort of like a core group of performers, but you also have other people that are not exactly transient, but more flexible. So I want to talk more about that a little bit later, but I want to start with the background and your background, especially in terms of like your music and musical influences growing up and how that led to the formation of of start making sense wow that's a that is a long form question <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we can break it into little yeah. pieces uh, well as from a family of musicians my father's a drummer and my brother is a drummer coincidentally the drummer in start making sense as well so i grew up as a drummer in a household that very much supported music i also played saxophone in grade school and middle school so music has always been at the forefront of my life and my family's life. So, you know, high school, I dropped the saxophone and went back to the drums because the saxophone at that time, in my mind, wasn't as cool. <laughs> there also weren't that many, uh, you know, punk rock, rock and roll bands that wanted a saxophone player. So <laughs> played with a lot of great people in high school. The main band I was in, actually, two gentlemen who are now Bethlehem Residents as well, uh, Dave Johnson, who's a really excellent bass player, who played a whole lot, and uh, Aaron Kinsman. Huh. We had a band in high school together. It kind of went from there, you know. That band dissolved when everybody went to college. 
And then I started playing with a band called The Insidious Rays, and we played, recorded, and released albums and toured like madmen for almost 10 years, give or take. And that was kind of where I cut my teeth, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time, I was also working for a band called Project Object, which was a Zappa, Frank Zappa tribute band. I would drive and do merchandise for them all over the country on many long extended tours. So I learned a lot of the business aspect from the band leader of that band, Andre Chumley, kind of shadowing him unbeknownst to me, learning my current trade and not knowing that's what I was learning. And uh, yeah, in my early 30s, after the city of trades dissolved, I bounced around for a little bit with different musical projects. Actually, all the while, while doing all that, teaching at the what was then called the Paul Green School of Rock in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, for about 14 years, I think. Mm. So I was teaching, teaching drums there when I wasn't on the road. So all of that was, I consider it my uh, higher education, going to college, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of paying for it, I barely got paid for it. <laughs> 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 but uh, it was a wonderful life lesson that put me in the position to, to be able to kind of barely handle this once this took off. So we, we started doing Start Making Sense basically as a one-off. We, we did it at the Fun House in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. God bless the Fun House. Just one night at the suggestion of Tina, the owner, she actually suggested that we get a bunch of people together and play Talking Head songs for a night. So we did. And here we are 12 years later playing over 100 shows a year in a normal year. So was she just like a, a big Talking Heads fan herself and just wanted to hear Talking Heads no, that night or? No, I, I don't think so. Not, you know, not, not a huge Talking Heads fan. She obviously liked them, but we were doing a couple of the members in Start Making Sense. We had done a night of The Who. We did a lot of The Who's Quadrophenia and we did a, another set of some Led Zeppelin stuff just for fun. And at the end of the night, she said, that was really cool. You should do another, another night you know, in a month or two or three, but do it, do a different band. And okay. we were like, yeah, that sounds great. You got any ideas? And that's what she said. Wow. <laughs> Fateful. Yeah. 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 We, it's kind of that thing, you know, we'd all tried original bands and so many projects, you know, beating them to death, trying to get them to work. And the one thing we did not intend on having be a career uh, ended up being it. <laughs> Did you feel like you had an appreciation, like any, like a deep appreciation for Talking Heads music at that point, or did that come later? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Huge Talking Heads fan. Obviously, my appreciation grew once we started doing this, but even up to that point, yeah. In fact, I was talking about Aaron Kinsman before. I remember vividly the day he got the Tear of Music album. We were probably 15 or 16. And we sat down and listened to the whole thing. And, uh, you know, things changed that day. <laughs> right. Saw things a lot differently musically uh, and otherwise, to be quite honest. I remember him saying, look, every title of every song is one word, <laughs> you know, on the back of the album. I was like, wow, look at that, you know, and all these little things that just popped out that we had never seen or experienced before. Well, maybe this would be a good point to talk a little bit about Talking Heads itself, the band, because 
not everybody is familiar with them, although they are a legendary band, of course. They were formed in the late 70s. I was reading up on the history, and their first album actually came out like about a month after I was born, 1977. That was the album that had Psycho Killer on it, which became one of their earliest hits, their earliest hit, I think. And that's certainly a song that you guys perform. But they they came sort of out of the punk rock scene of the late 70s in New York. But they really crossed over and exploded, you know, sort of in the popular consciousness in the 80s. And their music is hard to categorize exactly because it, it is a fusion of many different styles. And I'm thinking that that may be, you know, partly why it's been able to remain so relevant. But I want to hear hear your thoughts about that and, and how you would, you know, how do you describe talking heads to somebody when it's, you know, so many different things? Great question. I usually use some of the 80s moniker in there, you know, mm-hmm. in the 80s, if I'm keeping it brief. Generally speaking, uh, actually, to go back to what you said with the punk rock thing, I always find that very interesting. I had the great fortune of being able to play CBGBs quite a few times wow. in high school. And I think that the word punk has morphed over time into a different type of sound that's equated with it, right? Fast, mm-hmm. loud, angry, that kind of thing. Uh, but at the time in the 70s, what it, what it really was there in that, in that CBGB scene was just basically anything that didn't fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> into a mold, you know? And uh, right. so you had like bands like Television, Talking Heads and Blondie, but you also had the Ramones, you know, or the Dead Boys and all these more aggressive, what we think of as punk rock, you know? But they all were there basically under that banner. And I think that definitely would have influenced Talking Heads in the belief that they could kind of do whatever they wanted. You know, mm-hmm. they didn't have to be pigeonholed into one thing. So as they grew, the sound changed and more. I know they were very conscious of how they recorded every album, and they would record every album very differently, not just sonically, but the way they approached it. Remain in Light is a specific one where they basically jammed till they found a groove that they liked, come up with another one and do the same thing, and they did that for all of the songs, and then went back and figured out what are the lyrics going to be, what is the song about, what else can we put on top of it, which is, at the time, a very unique way to approach writing an album. So I think that went to the sound a lot. Every album was approached differently, and how do we come up with this group of songs? Mm-hmm. So that allowed it to kind of spread out. But I think their, their longevity is, is really based on the They were able to somehow be artistically credible and unique, but not so far out that the pop world or pop radio wouldn't take it right you know that's a really unique place in the the pantheon of, of, of music you know there's not many bands that were able to do that successfully i guess the time period allowed for it a little bit more certainly the 80s it was a little easier to kind of sneak weird stuff into the mainstream artists were supported more to be able to create like that it didn't have to necessarily fit as long as it sold the labels didn't really care right <laughs> so they also had a great timing with it all. all. All the things lined up in their favor, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't get the sense that they were like trying to write a hit, you know, the, something that would be a hit on the radio. Right. Definitely not. 
Yes. That happened organically, which is why you don't hear people yep. say, oh, Talking Heads sold out. I've never heard anybody say that. And yeah, they, they definitely did not. Right. <laughs> they actually stopped at their peak. <laughs> that's true. You know? But you do hear, I mean, you do hear their music. It, it's been so influential. And, you know, in terms of movies and, I mean, you, you hear it to this day in commercials, which, you know, that's a whole other discussion about, you know, whether mm-hmm. whether music of this caliber should even be put in commercials you know does it degrade it but they're definitely very picky about where it lands uh, david Byrne is very vocal about not mm-hmm. allowing it to be used unless they feel as though it's worthwhile right so, have they performed at all in the recent past or reunited or no they it's really funny i'm pretty sure it's in david Byrne's book how music works if not, it might have been in an interview he did with uh, Questlove. Mm-hmm. But he talked about that after the last album, the management had said, you know, okay, we got to get ready for the next tour, and it has to be all stadiums because you're that big now. We can't do theaters and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And he, he didn't want to do that just for a myriad of reasons, you know, the music wouldn't translate, the sound is terrible in the stadium, especially in the 80s, it hadn't been fine-tuned yet, the intimacy with the audience is gone, you know, he had all these reasons why he didn't want to do it, and that was kind of, that was one of the main reasons where, why he stopped the band, basically. They couldn't stay where they were, they couldn't go backwards, all they could do was go forward, and he didn't like where forward looked. So then, they played once, for the, when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think they played two songs, and that was it. And he's very adamant that it will not do it again. Right. <laughs> Which in some ways is very admirable. He's just, his reasoning, I think, is, is actually... It's admirable, admirable and rare. <laughs> well, had they kept going, like The Stones or like U2 or something, you know, where, where it had been a constant they would have developed together, right? But they've been apart for so long, it's just a nostalgia trip. And he doesn't feel, he feels it'll actually like taint the, the legacy of the band, you know, because it would be seen as a money grab or they're not gonna be as good as they were 30 years ago when they were 30 years younger or, you know, whatever. There's a thousand reasons. So it's a very interesting approach. I think them all being financially well off makes it easy to make the decision. <laughs> Right, they didn't. Uh, but he also, you know, he's constantly creating too. Like he has never stopped making amazing music and art, visual art installations, and writing books. So I think he's pretty creatively fulfilled. So was it two of the band members that went off and did the Art of Noise? Is that Talking Heads? No, Tina Weymouth and Chris Frog did the Tom Tom Club. The Tom Tom Club. Okay, that's right. I knew it yeah. was. I knew there was like a little side project at some point yeah uh, in the 80s and it's funny because we all we all think of it as little but the tom tom club album and the single actually when it came out talking heads was still active and i think it sold more records than whatever the current talking heads album was at that time Mm. (laughs) so at that moment they had a huge thing going on while they were still in talking heads I re- right. I wonder if that caused any tension or anything at the time that they 
I some of the stuff I've read has definitely lent to tension. You know, there was kind of okay, so now David Byrne's going to do his solo album, or you know, everybody's kind of buying for the. I mm-hmm. can do it too. Right. Well, that's interesting too because within Start Making Sense, some of the members have solo, you know, flourishing solo careers at the same time that they're in start making sense has it always been that way and does that ever cause logistical issues or how do you how do you work through that (laughs) yeah logistics are definitely the biggest part of this band (laughs) (laughs) with so many members and so many things going on logistics are key but other than logistics there's there's absolutely no tension Uh, every member of the band uh, core members and and subs have other musical projects going on. The vast majority of them original projects. It's great. Personally, I feel it's necessary to keep a balance, both creatively and spiritually, and a bunch of different reasons. But it's been great. Having Start Making Sense moderate level of success that we have has also allowed us to bring in our original projects as openers for Start Making Sense a lot of times and expose those projects to a larger audience that we might not be able to otherwise right well and and i can sort of like thinking about it you know in the sense of like the traditional model of a band like you you know you are together all the time you know that just seems like a rest like a pressure cooker you know and when you have the ability to go off and do your own thing it's you know automatically a release of some of that pressure so like in terms of like sustainability, it, it your model seems to make more sense than a lot of the traditional, you know, the traditional quote unquote <laughs> band model. Uh, yeah, the trial and error, you know, we figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> we do also, since, since the band is so, the Start Making Sense band is so large, we don't tour traditionally either. So we're basically weekend warriors. Mm-hmm. We do March through December almost straight through and we take January and February off. So we do see a lot of each other, but we're not stuck together for a month on the road. It's four days, take a break, four days, take a break. So Mm -hmm. I think that also has allowed us to have the longevity that we have if we haven't put ourselves in that pressure cooker. That's a good point. Sort of manageable chunks of time. And everyone can be home. A lot of us have toured traditionally, and we know how detrimental that can be mentally and physically and with your home life. So this allows us, I always make the analogy that we're like traveling salesmen, you know, like we go out and come home, okay, here's, here's the money, honey, okay, I'll see you next week, you know. But we do get we do get time at home, so we're not on the road constantly, which having done that before, I much prefer this model. <laughs> right. Well, I know, I mean, I talked about my sister, Sylvia. I know, like, she she isn't somebody who could, you know, perform with you all the time, even if that was, you know, what you, you all wanted because of, you know, other obligations. So for her, it's been great, you know, to be able to have that flexibility. You know, I don't think she would yeah. have that many other, many other groups. Yeah, it, it, to go back kind of with what you're saying before with the amount of, of people we have involved with this project. One aspect is I, I personally don't know any musician who doesn't love talking heads. So to get people to want to do this, I don't have to do anything. 
except say you want to play chocolate head songs and they're like yes of course <laughs> and to add to that then we have that flexibility where there's so many people involved that if someone can't do a show it doesn't mean the show won't happen or there's no ill will you know oh what do you mean you can't do the show you know mm-hmm. that kind of stuff doesn't really exist so it makes it a really flexible situation for everyone and it's and I think it actually makes it more fun that way because the pressure is off. The last count, I think I have, there's 45 people total wow. involved in in keeping this operation running. That's like a village almost. <laughs> it, it is, uh, you know, without sounding too hippy-dippy, it is, it is absolutely a family at this point. We've been doing it this long, and, and most of the people involved have been doing it almost that long. Wow. So a lot of the people that that I say are subs, substitutes really aren't, you know, they've, they've been there almost since the beginning. Or also, all of them are friends. It's all people we've known. We never call anybody cold that we don't know, mm-hmm. or put an ad, or it's, it's always someone we already know. So it is a very tight-knit group, and it makes it a lot more fun. And I'm guessing, I mean, most of these family members, they are, you know, local you know, homegrown talent, like they, they you know, grew up in the Lehigh Valley area? I would say, yes, yeah, 60%, okay. maybe 70%, due to myself and Jenny Founds, our, our, one of our singers, actually bass player now too, she attended the School of Rock in Downingtown while I was a teacher there, actually. So there's a really strong connection with that school because of the time there. So a fair amount of the people in the band, uh, subs and otherwise, come from there okay. as well. So there's huh. kind of a Philadelphia Downingtown connection, but it's essentially extended family of musicians. So right. it's not, not a stretch. They've, they've all played in Bethlehem a hundred times also. <laughs> right. So. It's still sort of the whole southeastern PA kind of... Yeah, area. I mean, we're definitely rooted in Bethlehem, but that, that would be like our auxiliary home. Right. You were talking about how Talking Heads was sort of broken up, I guess, by or, you know, influenced, you know, towards, you know, stopping touring by the pressure that was put on them to perform like large shows in stadiums. And, you know, I saw you about a year and a half ago at the Music Fest cafe in Bethlehem, which is an amazing venue for seeing any type of live performance, in my opinion, because of how it's designed. It's very intimate. I think, you know, for, especially for your type of performance, I mean, it's very physical what you do. You are not just, you know, singing and playing guitar, but you're sort of channeling, you know, David Byrne, who used these different kinds of mannerisms and also, like, why why did he do that? I mean, what what was the, you know, purpose behind that? Sort of like the the weird shaking and and all that. Do you have like stories about that? I, I have some uh, some insight I've been able to glean from interviews and friends of friends who were uh, close to the band. <laughs> A fair amount of it was calculated. A lot of it was done as musical theater, once in a lifetime is one that, that there's a lot of twitching and shaking in. Mm-hmm. And he had based a lot of that on creatures in the 80s, doing a lot of speaking in tongues and a lot of the, the healing and things of that nature. Oh, wow. So he was 
essentially copying that as a visual to go with the context of the song. So a lot of them were calculated and thought about, especially for the Stop Making Sense film. I don't think anything that happens in that film is an accident. All of that was pretty, pretty well scripted and rehearsed to be exactly the way it looked. David Byrne had said on record that you know he's pretty convinced he's somewhere on the autism spectrum. Mm. So possibly some of that could be nerves. He has said the earlier performances were kind of nervousness and just not knowing how to act in front of people. But I think by the time they got the stunning sense and all the things we we know visually of them iconically, he had kind of honed it into an actual art form of his own. <laughs> Currently, I'm a good 15 years older than the visual that everyone has of David Byrne. So I will say doing some of those moves requires me to stay in physical shape. And it does take its toll. I can believe that. I don't think he did those moves for 12 years. So I'm not sure if he's feeling the same things I am. But (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of you know, jerking your body around and, you know, you do get sore. Like I, I would, <laughs> I can, I can imagine. Uh, I had a, I was very lucky to have a, a, a kinesiologist and chiropractor that I went to for a very long time. And I asked him to watch video and he had also seen the band. So I just said, am I doing damage? Like, can you watch me do these things and tell me if I'm doing anything wrong? Mm-hmm. And he he watched everything and basically said, nope, you're you're keeping your body loose and relaxed while you're doing these things. So you're not actually doing any harm other than repetitive movement. So that's so I guess I'm doing it the best I can. <laughs> well, you you certainly pay tribute to him, you know, with with what you do on stage, and it's something that you really have to see. I mean, I can't even put it into words, but you know, you can. You know, see it in many of your the band's videos on YouTube of the performances. But as I was saying, yeah, I mean, I don't think you know you would be able to appreciate your music or or Talking Heads, you know, in in a bigger venue, much bigger than the Music Fest Cafe. And what are some of your your other favorite performance spots and memorable places that you've performed throughout your career? Wow, there's a lot of them. We've been extremely lucky, thankful, grateful for all of the places we've been able to play. But we've had the fortune of being able to play a lot of legendary venues or venues that a lot of us had seen some of our favorite bands in growing up or or even recently. So there's a laundry list that I don't even know if I could get to, but we played the Paramount Theater in Asbury Park when we did a recreation of Stop Making Sense. Oh, that wow. Saying the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York, we did that. Also a Stop Making Sense recreation. The Irving Plaza in New York, we, we had the pleasure to play a number of times. We're going to be doing the Franklin Music Hall in Philadelphia, which used to be the Electric Factory. That's we're pretty legendary. That in September, yeah. and that's crazy to us because we've all seen many shows there. But yeah, I the, the list is almost endless. We we've just been so blessed to be able to play such legendary, amazing venues. And that's um, just in the of U- all sizes. I wanted to also mention that you've toured internationally a few years ago. You 
were in Cuba. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like? Absolutely. And thank God we had Sylvia with us. Um, <laughs> uh, her Spanish is very good. And I'm very happy that she was able to go because she was certainly somebody I was thinking about when we were starting to plan to do that. I, was, I really wanted her to be able to go. I know on she that loved it. Yeah. Trip for a, a million reasons. One of our keyboard players, Devin Calderon, his father is from Cuba, and he had recently gone to Cuba for the first time since he had left as a child, and they had just come back from going there, uh, the family. And this was at a time, I think just 2018. So we, maybe 2017, I'm sorry if I don't have that right, but you were able to go to Cuba. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, you had to meet some criteria and jump through some hoops, but it was possible. So uh, the story and the, the information that Devin and his father had come back with was just so intriguing to me, obviously, you know, if anyone's an adventure, international traveler, Cuba is on the list at the top for most people because it's just a place that no one knows anything about, really, right? Right, that forbidden fruit. Then, exactly, exactly. But musically speaking, so much of the later Talking Heads catalog is very Afro-Cuban inspired. Mm -hmm. And that tie it was really strong, and all members of the band are very big fans of everything Afro-Cuban and Kuti and all of the Afrobeat stuff from Africa. So to us, it was kind of a no-brainer if we could get there, play, and play with local musicians and kind of see where the ties were and, and learn more about it. Why would we not do that? Right. <laughs> so we did, and we brought as many fans as we could with us, and it was a pretty amazing experience, a pretty high up there on the most amazing experiences I've had. And we did film a lot of it, most of it actually, and we're just trying to figure out what to do with the footage because it was such a unique experience and a unique time to go there. We're not sure what the story is, with mm -hmm. what we captured in video. So we're, we're still throwing it around, trying to come up with like, what can we do? And we get someone to edit it and put it together it's very unique and we don't want to do a disservice to the Cuban people mm -hmm. and just kind of throwing something out that's not very representative of the Cuban people, not the Cuban government. We'll be clear about that. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's where that is. I don't know if that answered your well, question. Well, I would, I for one I would. long-winded on that. <laughs> I for one would love to see like a mini tour documentary about about that trip i think that would be absolutely fascinating not to mention entertaining but i understand what you mean about you know wanting to do it the right way and 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 it is and it is i'm not to be political but it is a shame that the politics are you know so omnipresent in terms of you know these cross trying to forge you know cross-cultural connections with Cuba because it is such a musically rich place culturally it's incredibly rich and like you said you know you could go then I guess now you can't I mean maybe you will be able to again but then you won't be able to I mean it's just I don't know it is it's, it's really tricky and 
despite all of those political hang-ups, the, the Cuban people are so positive, happy, friendly, beautiful human beings, you know? And that, to me, is kind of, that, that was the big takeaway, is with all of the, the hardships that, that are being forced upon them by both governments, there's the most amazing people I've ever come in contact with, you know, mm-hmm. and that it's hard to convey that with what video or footage we have, you know, I mean, it's there, but how do you convey that properly? We're, I'm, we're not filmmakers, you know, so we, we just captured what we could and we're hoping we can find somebody who might want to kind of help to bring that out of, out of what we have. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a great, a great goal and I'm sure there would be an audience for a film about about that trip I've never been there I, I was jealous when Sylvia got to go uh, because <laughs> I would love to visit I, I've watched many documentaries about Cuba and obviously not they're not a rich society in terms of you know material wealth but I feel like you know the people there live a rich life you know somehow in spite of that, I would venture to say uh, richer than than most of us here in that regard. Yeah, and you see it in the smiles, you know, the, the expressions, people's body language. Yep. Here, it's tension, you know, you see on people's faces a lot of the time. You don't see those very natural kind of smiles that you do in a place like Cuba. So hopefully, hopefully things will continue to evolve and. The music will be free, you know, and and there will be more abilities to to share across our two countries. Absolutely. If there's a one positive I, I could say about it is that the music definitely has not suffered under all of this political blow. That's good. The music is thriving. So yeah. There's at least that. Right. I want to shift back to Bethlehem a little bit and talk about Music Fest, because obviously Bethlehem is known for Music Fest, and and Start Making Sense is a Bethlehem band, and you will be performing at Music Fest this year. We did not have Music Fest last year, but that's obviously got to be a special connection for you to be at Music Fest, and can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, we love playing at Music Fest. There's, there's really, that's about all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, we've done it often. Sometimes we have to skip years just due to logistics and scheduling. You know, we can't do it every year, but it's it's amazing to be able to do it anytime we can. And again, you know, all of us have played in a number of bands prior to all this that have also played at Music Fest. And, you know, I'm 42. I've seen some amazing shows at Music Fest as a as a concert goer in my youth. I saw Ray Charles. Mm, I remember when he was there. Yeah, down by Moravian, you oh, know, yeah. at La Fleck. The list goes on and on. But uh, yeah, we it's an honor and pleasure to play there at any time of the time. This year, this year's probably going to be a doozy. <laughs> Would be my guess. I had to, if I was a betting man, it's going to be a wild one. We did do the virtual one last year, which was great. It gave us an opportunity to play. They did have a very limited audience for that last year, but everyone was outside and we were playing inside. It's kind of a real distance thing. 
Hmm. But at that point, that was kind of the first crowd we had played for, I think, even as small as it was. So, uh, yeah, we're always grateful for Artsquest and everything they do. They've supported this band, all of our other bands currently and previously. That organization is one of the large parts, uh, I think, as to why Bethlehem is so supportive of the arts. So I'm, I'm so happy to be, be a part of any of that. Yeah, no, definitely. Music Fest is... I mean, I remember the first Music Fest. That's how old I am. <laughs> 19, 1984, I think it was. And it's just evolved, like, unbelievably since then. But yet retained, you know, the core values, I think, of community. And it does get a, you know, its share of complaints, you know, based on... I think a lot of it has to do with just the sheer number of people that come out for it, which puts a strain on, you know, the the city and its residents to some degree. But I think people this year are really going to appreciate it even more, like you said, because it last year was, you know, different, you know, and this year I think there will be a lot of pent up excitement, you know, for, for seeing you guys for sure. And everyone, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, and to go with that, you know, I mean, the sheer size of it, you're right, you know, and you know, haters are going to hate, you know, there's always going to be detractors to anything. <laughs> um, but what ArtsQuest and Music Fest has done is, you know, I mean, it's free, it's essentially mostly free music for 10 days. Right. Uh, where, where are you going to find that? You know, there's very few places that do that. The, the detractors can say what they will. It's still a positive for the city and for the community, without a doubt. Right. Uh, and we're we're playing at the Levitt Pavilion this year. Awesome. Um, yeah, which is great. I've I've had the fortune of playing there a number of times, but not with Start Making Sense. No. So this will be the first time we've played on that stage. So I'm I'm very excited about that. The I think the Levitt. Have that wrong. Oh, okay. Well, either way, I'm very excited about it. Well, I'm excited about it, too. I definitely plan to be there. Is it August 7th? I'm sure it's on your I'm website. Pretty sure. I think you are correct. I don't think they've announced it yet because they don't have everything lined up, but it is August 7th. Okay. Well, mark your calendars, listeners. And, of course, you have many other upcoming dates, which we'll we'll get to talking about a little bit. But I, before we we sort of wrap things up. I, I did want to talk about COVID-19, which which we just touched on and how it impacted Start Making Sense. Obviously, it had a huge impact on bands everywhere and forced adaptations that, you know, probably you never would have envisioned. What are some of your takeaways from that experience? I, I want to read a quote. This was from your Facebook page. On March 13th, 2020, you were streaming live on the internet, playing music so that everyone, yourselves included, could get a break from the insanity that was early COVID. So thank you. I mean, that's really special that, you know, you were able to get people through, you know, what was like an incredibly difficult, scary time, you know, with music. But I'm sure you guys were fearful too. Ooh. 
you got an hour? I can just <laughs> I know, take it's... my book to you? No, I'm kidding. Yeah, I mean, it, none of us have ever experienced anything like that. It was really, we normally play about 100 shows a year. For 2020, we played 10. Wow. So if that gives you any indication. And all of them were very odd and weird setups and, you know, to follow protocols and all that. So it was definitely a shift. But the, the live streams, actually, because that was our only option at the time, that was a very interesting shift for us because we had never really done those before. Maybe a couple shows of ours had been live streamed, but we never did one with no audience. We had to do them from our rehearsal space in Allentown because it was the only place we could go to mm-hmm. do that. Thankfully, a very good friend of ours who also helped when we do the Stop Making Sense recreation, Sean Smith, is a videographer who also works for Fish and Joe Russo's Almost Dead. He amazingly had all the gear needed to do a live stream. We were able to couple that with our front of house sound engineer, Colin Reynolds, and Nugs.net were gracious enough to just stream it for free and let us take the tip. They, hmm. they took no money. So things like that happened quickly, where everyone just pulled together basically for the, the show must go on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mantra right and uh, to me i think that might be one of the biggest takeaways from that for me is is no matter what the odds musicians and artists will always find a way mm-hmm. um back to cuba you know it's, there can be restrictions but they'll always find a way it was interesting to figure out how to do that in that time frame we had never had that before and it also makes you very grateful for everything you had before. <laughs> right. It's a lot more work to do things like that. And then obviously the connection with people doing the live streams is very interesting. You finish a song and it's silent. You know, <laughs> you know that was a, a weird thing to get used to, but we got used to it and it was great. And just to be quite frank, the we did every, I don't think we had pretty sure we never had a live stream with that people had to pay for mm-hmm. we did everything free and just said tip or donate if you want to and completely transparently those tips and donations that people gave us in those first four months were what allowed us to hold on for the rest of the year to be able to come back now and play show that's financially awesome. we would have never been able to make it without the generosity of our family and that to me unbelievable i just got chills like hearing you say that (laughs) seriously because that's the absolute truth that's what it's all about yeah so it kind of stripped everything back down to like base level you know yeah with like why are we doing why are we doing are we doing this for money or you know no we're doing this because we like to make music you know and why are people watching because they 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 need music too you know it really brought it down to the basics which is great for all of us, you know, it's like this, uh, recenter our values. <laughs> and I've heard other bands or performers locally say similar things that it, you know, the silver lining to COVID was that it almost, even though physically you weren't able to perform in front of people, it kind of brought you closer to your 
to the family that is your your fans and your followers. And that sounds like what you just described. And we're lucky in that, just to go back to that Cuba trip, a lot of the people that went on that trip are quote unquote fans, but are actually friends. You know, we've mm-hmm. been doing this so long that a lot of the people that we play for, we know now, you know, very well. So, you know, there's a there's a uh, an added layer to that relationship, you know, and I think that's also part of it. Uh, both sides of the relationship, you know, feel that and understand that. One f- quick final question before we sort of wrap things up with telling listeners how they can follow Start Making Sense. Getting back to David Byrne, do you know if he knows about Start Making Sense? And, you know, I'm sure you get asked that, but I'm sure listeners would be curious to know. It's funny, up until two years ago, yeah, two and a half years ago, I knew he was aware of us. We have mutual friends, mutual people in the business, et cetera, et cetera. We also, early on, were able to play with Bernie Worrell, who uh, was in Parliament Funkadelic, and mm-hmm. also played with Talking Heads on a couple of albums, and for the Stop Makes Sense for John Tatum. Our guitar player is a really good friend of Bernie. Hmm. We got to play a lot with Bernie and talk with him mm-hmm. about it, and he, he thoroughly enjoyed it. So, yeah, all, all the members are aware of our existence. We've actually, we have had second-party conversations with most of them. And, and David Byrne is aware, one of our bass players is Julie Slick, who is a phenomenal bass player and plays with Adrian Ballou, who was also a member of Talking Heads for a time, most known for his time with King Crimson and David Bowie and Frank Zappa. One of Julie's friends is Angie Swan, who is the current guitar player in David Byrne's American Utopia Broadway production, oh, but wow. also the tour prior to that. And Angie sent Julie a message saying, David and I are on the bus and we're watching you guys do Stop Making Sense because I thought it was a bootleg of Talking Heads. Huh. And I showed it to David and he said, no, that's not Talking Heads. (laughs) (laughs) But they watched, they watched a good chunk of it. And I I asked Julie, well, what did what did Angie say? Like, what did David think? And he said, oh, he loved it. He thought it was great. You know, he was laughing. He thought it was so cool that somebody would do that. So that's the best I got. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> that must be a good feeling when you hear that. I mean. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's If he's laughing, I'll take that over anything else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it means it entertained him in some way, shape, or form. That's good enough. Right, right. We want him happy. The website for Start Making Sense is startmakingsenseband.com. And you'll find lots of information on there as well as tracks and videos of, you know, some of your, from some of your performances. You can subscribe to a mailing list, which I would encourage everybody to do. And there are links here as well to your Facebook and Instagram pages, which I know you're, you're, actively posting on that's quite a bit of of work but you have large followings on social media so definitely follow start making sense on instagram facebook and youtube am i missing anything i don't think so i think you got it and just just an fyi the the mailing list we we only send things out every couple of months we're not going to fill up your 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 spam box there so 
Don't be afraid. That's awesome. And I think you and I were talking about this before we started, but you were, were announcing many dates every week. So if something's not, if you don't see a date listed that's near you, uh, hang on and check back because we are completely booked for the rest of the year and into next year. So all of that will be coming out as soon as we can announce stuff. Right. Some of the dates that I did see were like uh, Washington, D.C., Atlantic City, Rhode Island. It seems like mostly like sort of mid-Atlantic, New England. You have a lot of those coming up. Yep. Uh, we're actually we're going to be in Nashville. We're doing the Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville. We'll oh, be cool. In Colorado. Oh, I saw Burlington, Vermont. Love Burlington. Burlington Vermont. Yeah, we're, we're all over the place. We're probably coming near you if you're listening to this. Take a take a peek. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, we'll be eagerly following you to see more of those announcements, and it's just really exciting to to see you coming back and and all the enthusiasm that everybody has to see you live again. Thank you so much, Star Making Sense band leader, lead vocalist, John Braun. We could easily talk for another hour, I'm sure, and, and we'll have to have you on again to do that. Yeah, let's do it again. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. Maybe next time I'll bring Loop Sylvia in and or, you know, we'll have yes. have a couple other oh, people. Oh, let's do that. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, or a couple other, or bring other band members and Sylvia and not me. <laughs> That, we that can totally like a great do that. idea. Yeah, we have a few people to choose from, so so that's good. Forty-five. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a big number. I'm blown yep. away by that. Uh, thank you, Josh. Yeah, so much for having me on. I really it's appreciate been a pleasure. it. Uh, it's been nice to talk about all all of these different things. Absolutely, so I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Best wishes for all your upcoming dates, performances, and and we'll. We'll see you probably at Music Fest, so looking forward to that. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much. We've been recording No Rain Date since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at sockandsource.com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Thank you.